In our scripture reading this morning, Philippians chapter 2, I don't want to read the whole passage, but if you have a Bible, if you turn there to Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is the entire text, but I want to pick it up, if we can, at verse 3 this morning uh, in our scripture reading, and then head to, uh, into time for uh, some reflection. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, and, uh, 20 years ago or so, I, I've been in full-time ministry for 34. I was a youth pastor for 18. Uh, in the final eight years of that uh, youth ministry career, if you will, 1993 to 01, towards the end of that in the late 90s, uh, I had a youth group of, can you believe this, 600 young people, 7th through 12th graders, just in the youth group. I had 250 adult volunteers and nine paid employees just to work with 7th through 12th graders in a $3.5 million student center that I was able to design with the architects and pay cash for uh, as we built that and opened it in a church of 5,000 people. Uh, 5,000 white Republican suburbanites, I should say. Uh, in an absolutely wonderful church in so many ways. Uh, but it was in the late 90s attending this church, being a, a member of the staff and, and, and doing the youth work there in this otherwise amazing church in the city of Little Rock where roughly 42% uh, people are white, 42% people black, somewhere in there 45% uh, with uh, Hispanics, Asians making up the rest. But here I was in this otherwise amazing church, again, white, Republican, suburban, etc. wasn't even really thinking about issues of diversity. When one day I went to church and realized for the first time that in this otherwise wonderful ministry and church that I was a part of, the only African Americans in the church were janitors. And something began to bother me about that. Something was not right with that picture. I didn't know what was not right, but in my gut, in my spirit, I felt something's not right with this picture. And that's when I began to recognize uh, the prayer of Christ, right? The Our Father, we just prayed. As part of that prayer, he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And it was in the late 90s then, in reflection on the church I was a part of, the disparity from this otherwise amazing ministry to the people it represented, the rhetoric of preaching a message of God's love for all people from an otherwise segregated congregation, that I began to reflect on this prayer of Christ and ask myself a question. And this is the question I began to ask myself over 20 years. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is this church? If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the local church? 
Perhaps you don't know or realize, but today 86.3% of churches throughout this country fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that so many churches, the vast majority of churches throughout this country, remain stubbornly segregated and that little has changed in the more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. And I began to reflect on this question, why is it that so many churches, the vast majority, are systemically segregated? When Christ taught us to pray that what's going on up there ought to be going on down here. When we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will be in that place, walking, working, worshiping God together as one, in the celestial, the eternal body and bride of Christ. We know it's not segregated. So why on earth is the local church? Well, I've heard many excuses through the years, many reasons, rationale, if you will, that our churches have ended up segregated, by and large. Uh, for instance, uh, some people will say, well, you know, it's, 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 I like going to church with people like me. And, like, I like the kind of music that, that we play. And I, and I like the kind of food we serve at the community meal. And I, and I like the length and the style of the preaching. And I like the color of the carpet. And, and people will talk about what they like. And so they like this church the way it is. Well, as I reflected on that reason, I, I understand it, that we like to be in environments that we like, that... That, that, in a sense, play to our past experience, our personalities, our preferences, our culture, right? But, but I began to look at this Bible. I'm like, where in this book is it about what you like? Right? Where in this book is it about what we like? See, I thought we were supposed to align the church to the vision of Christ, the vision of the Apostle Paul, the way it was done in the New Testament, not get a local church to fit what I like. Right? I thought we were supposed to align our likes with this book. Someone else might say, and, and they have, that, well, it's natural that we go to churches with people just like us, right? I mean, uh, I think it was Socrates or Plato or one of those old Greek guys way back in the past, right? Philosophers. But they observed that birds of a feather, what? Flock together, right? So some people would say, well, it's natural that, that we go to church with people like us. And I would say, absolutely, I totally get it. Like, yes, it's natural for us to group up and be with people of a similar background, cultural heritage, age, all kinds of different things. But you know, when I signed up for this Christian stuff, if you will, when I signed up to be a Christian, it wasn't about living in the natural. I thought it was about living in the supernatural. So the word super means going above and beyond something, above and beyond what is otherwise natural. That's why I have Superman. He's not just a man, he's Superman, right? So not just about what's natural, what, I thought it was about living in the supernatural, in the power of the Holy Spirit, getting above and beyond what is otherwise natural to live in the supernatural, right? Some people say, and, and, and they'll say, well, it's just too hard. Look, I get it. I'd like to be in a diverse environment. I'd like to be a part of a diverse church, but it's just so hard. You know, I've got to put up with sometimes the music they play. It's, it's not what I, I like, and I've got to eat food I don't like. And, and, and sometimes people talk in a different language, and, and they're out in the foyer, and it's just so hard. My mind can't take it. It's just too hard, right? And I, and I get that it's hard. Yes, it's hard. It's intentional, and we have to work at it. 
I get all that, but, but I'm encouraged that there's no pass for degree of difficulty in this book. See, aren't you glad that Jesus, when he was asked by his father to cross cultures, as it were, to leave the stuff of heaven to come and be part of the stuff of earth? And he had going to be a Jew. You know, the father said, Jesus, son, right? I, I need you to go. You're going to be a Jew. You're going to eat like the Jews. You're going to sleep on a dirt floor like the Jews. You're going to speak Hebrew language. And he's like, oh, no, it's just too hard. Are you kidding me? I can't do it. It's just too hard. I got to learn another language. I got to eat that food. I got to, you see, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say it was too hard? Right? So no pass for degree of difficulty in this book for those of us who would follow Christ, right? It requires sacrifice. It requires giving up of yourself. It requires courage in some places. And the Apostle Paul knows all of this. This is what his entire life and all his writings is about. It's not so much proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation uh, in faith through God. Yes, that's the foundation of the Apostle's ministry. But very specifically, Paul gives his life for what in Romans 16.25 he calls his own good news, his own gospel, and that is the gospel of inclusion. That the kingdom of God, the local church, and ultimately salvation is not just available to one type of person, it's available to all types of people. And this is what the Apostle Paul preached. It's what he gave his life for. Here in Philippians chapter 2 then, beyond these otherwise earthly excuses, it's too hard, it's not natural, it's not what I like, Paul puts his finger on the reason that we today would have segregated churches and what he said we must do in terms of an attitude we must have if we're going to get beyond what is natural, what is hard, and what we like to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in and through the local church in order to proclaim a credible gospel, a credible message of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. So this is where he begins here, and I mean, he begins earlier, but we'll pick it up in verse 3. He says, do nothing then in the church, because remember, this is a letter written to who? Is it written to Mark the Maz? Nope. Is it written to you personally? No. It's written to a church. And so often in America and Western Europe, we, when we read the Bible, we think every verse is speaking to us individually, Right? And, and so it says, Mark DeMoz, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, right? We read it like that. You may not even be conscious of it, but did you know you read the Bible like that? And all the sermons, typically in many churches and many, in some, it's all speaking to what I, the individual, am called to do. And certainly, the Bible's filled with admonition for the individual. But when you have to, when you interpret the Bible, you have to know the context. These are letters written by the Apostle Paul, not to an individual, but to a local church. And so in the South, where I'm at in Little Rock, this would read, y'all do nothing from empty conceit. See? He's speaking not to the individual, but to collectively all of us together. Right? So he's speaking to a group. And with that in mind, he says this, church, group, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of, uh, of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. So what, in the context of Paul's life and writing, what he's saying is that to build a church that reflects God's love for all people on earth as it is in heaven, 
we collectively can't just think about one group in the church. We've got to think about all the groups in the church. It would be easy for me to be selfish. What if I was the pastor of this church? I say, you know, the kind of music I like is, is like really kind of old rock and roll from the 60s and 70s. And because I like that and I prefer it and I'm in a position of power since I'm the pastor, that's the kind of music we're going to have, right? A lot of churches are built just like that because the leaders decide what's going to happen in that church. And it attracts people who like what the leader likes. But Paul says, even to leaders, I can't just do what I want to do. I can't just do things selfishly or thinking only about me and my people group. I must also think about the interests of other people groups, of people who are not like me. Luke chapter 10, I must love my neighbor and we must love our neighbors, those very different than us, in and through our life and work in the church. So he says, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests then, but also for the interests of others. Again, not just for the individual, but other people groups. Very simply, if you're white, you can't just think about things from a white perspective. I got to think about African Americans or the Congolese or the Ethiopians or the Hispanics. Likewise, African Americans, it's not all about you. We have to think about white people. Every one of us, the rich, the poor, whatever it is, you can't just think about the way church should be done from your own past experience, from your own personality, from your preferences, from your culture. You must also think collectively, we must also think about others and other people groups. Now, how do you actually do that? How, how, Paul goes on not only to give the instruction, but he says, let me give you an example and let me give you the, the way how you can do this. How is it how, that you can get beyond what you otherwise like and prefer, what is otherwise hard, what is otherwise natural? How will you as an individual and therefore us collectively as a church actually get beyond these things to build a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse church that reflects God's love on earth for all people as it is. And how do you do that? How can it be done? What is required of y'all? Okay, what is required of y'all? Verse five, he says this, you have to have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he says it's done, it's accomplished by an attitude. And this attitude must permeate y'all collectively each one of us individually and therefore collectively, we as a church, Village United Methodist Church, must have this attitude in it, which was the same attitude that Christ had in himself. What is that attitude? He goes on to explain. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. And being found in the likeness of man, he, in humility, right, he had this attitude of humility, and he came down in obedience to Christ. It says, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being like, and made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The attitude, then, is an attitude of humility. And we exercise that attitude in obedience to Christ. That is how we get beyond the things that we otherwise like, the things we otherwise prefer. We surrender our rights to some degree for the sake of the whole and ultimately for the sake of the glory of God. How are you able to do that? 
with an attitude of humility, the same one that Christ had, that aligns you in obedience to Christ and where you are willing to die to yourself. To listen to music sometimes, not every week. Sometimes it's not going to be what you like. To eat food and to hang out with people that are different than you. Sometimes it's not what you like. It's hard, not natural. But we do it in obedience to Christ with an attitude of humility that reminds me my way is just a way of doing things. My way is just a way of thinking about things. Right? It's not the way of doing things. It's not the way of thinking. And each one of us, wherever you are, from your ethnic, your economic, your cultural backgrounds, we must not just think about what is good and right for us as a people group, but what about other people groups here? So we can build one community of faith, and therefore this community of faith can reach that diverse community that's out there as well. So we have to have this attitude in us, which is also in Christ Jesus. It's an attitude of humility and self-surrender in obedience to Christ. Well, it says here that he existed in the form of God. And Paul goes on to explain how, how, how this works and what this means. Because it says that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something as he was going to grasp. That's like the, the picture, if you look at me, that I'm going to keep for myself. It says, but he emptied himself. In the Greek, it's the word kenosis. And for 1,700 years at least, uh, theologians and pastors have wrestled with this passage. What does it mean that Jesus Christ emptied himself and became in the appearance of a man? Well, a couple things we definitely know. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man, right? Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. Can you explain it? I can't. That definitely is a mystery. We don't quite understand how that works, but it's true. He was fully God and fully man. So we definitely know that, right? But then it says he emptied himself. So that, that would imply that he stopped being God for a while to be a man. But again, we, we know that's not true from the Bible. He, he never stopped being God. You, you can't raise people from the dead unless you're what? God. Yeah, you can't, you can't feed 5,000, multiply. You can't do these things. You can't forgive sins, right, and, and not be God. So we know that he didn't stop or empty himself of being God. The best that we got as theologians after 1,700 years of reflection on this passage is that Jesus had a God card, okay? And he kept his God card in his back pocket. But for the most part, he walked around like a man, all right? But every now and then, he pulled the God card, Right? I'm going to raise this person from the dead. Boom, pulled the God card. Then he put it back in, walk around for a while. Got to forgive this woman of sin. Pulled the God card. So that, that's honestly the best we got. The reason we don't understand this is because people do not fully, have not fully understand the life, ministry, and writing of the Apostle Paul. And I obviously don't have time to go into all that. But Paul is not talking about this, a God card idea or some great mystery here. It's very clear and concrete what Paul was teaching this church in reflection of Christ. And this is what he meant. Although he had power, position, and privilege. Now think about that. He was omnipotent, right? He's, he doesn't just have power. He's got all the power, right? He, he sat on the throne of God, the right hand of God, so to speak. He's on the kingly throne. There's no higher position than to sit on the throne of God, right? To be God's son, right? So he's got power, position. He's privileged. He could launch himself off a cliff, the devil said, and angels will come catch him. 
He's got all power. He's got all position. He's got all privilege. But Paul says he did not regard these things as something he was just going to keep for himself. You understand? When I was a kid, we played a game uh, on the schoolyard called King of the Hill. Anybody old enough to remember that game, King of the Hill? There'd be like a little hill, like a little berm on the, on the, on the thing. And, and, you know, all of us little kids, we'd be down here, and we'd try to scramble up to the top, you know, and you're fighting off people and pushing away. And, and maybe you were lucky enough to get to the top, and then you got to the top, I'm king of the hill, but to stay there, you had to what? Keep people down. You with me? Because they're charging you. They're trying to pull you down. You've got to push them down to stay on top. And that was the game King of the Hill. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You remember that game? King of the Hill. Here's the deal. Jesus didn't come to be King of the Hill. He came to be King of the world. And that meant he had a different attitude. And it was an attitude of humility and obedience and self-sacrifice. In this country today, every demographic group, black, white, Republican, Democrat, Hispanic, women, you name it, every demographic group in this country today is fighting either to attain power, position, and privilege or to maintain power, position, and privilege. Am I right? Everyone. They're either fighting to get up the hill and get power, position, privilege, recognition, whatever you want to call it, to get what's theirs. They're fighting their way up the hill in one way or another, trying to fight their way up the hill to attain it. Or they're somehow on top of the hill, and they're trying to keep and maintain their power by keeping others down. Am I right? This passage teaches us the way you get power, position, and privilege is not by keeping it to yourself and fighting off others. It's doing what Jesus did. Whatever measure of power you have, whether that's because you were born into a certain culture, whether you have a certain education or you have money, whatever it is, whatever measure of power, position, and privilege this life has afforded you, rather than try to maintain it, right? The Bible calls us to be like Christ, to take what you have and empty yourself and come down. See, that's what he did. He came down. He left the power, position, and privilege behind. He emptied himself of that, and he came down to give us, those of us who didn't have power, position, and privilege, to give it to us. And instead of trying to push us down the hill, he came down to bring us up the hill with him. You with me? That's why we're called joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 says, we who have received Christ by faith, we are blessed, adopted, chosen, redeemed, forgiven. All the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are ours. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We get to inherit all of the heaven. See, it used to be God had one son. Now he's got many sons and many daughters, right? And so when you die, you leave your estate to your children, right? He doesn't just have one child. He's got many children. And they come from all over this planet and all over different cultures and all different backgrounds. And Jesus emptied himself. And instead of keeping it for himself, he came down to give us power, position, and privilege in the heavenly places that we before that did not have. And that attitude of humility and emptying yourself is what we're called to do, to go into the community, to go to be with people who aren't like us and to help them come up the hill with us. First by embracing Christ, and then in every other possible way we can imagine 
or will ourselves to do, whether it's like you're doing a great work here in literacy and, and education and reading, but we're in, in whatever you're doing and empowering Congolese and Ethiopians to be a part of a church, you could easily say, no, these buildings, we built these buildings, it's only for us. But your church doesn't have that attitude, does it? You say, hey, whatever, whatever we have, you know, the Hispanics say, mi casa es su casa, right? We leverage this and we empty ourselves and we say, please come. Let us help you come up the hill. Whether you're a little child or you're an Ethiopian, let us come with us up the hill. And therefore, we can all share in the spiritual blessing of power, position, and privilege in Christ. Amen? Amen. This is what God told us. So all that's to say is this is what this passage says. And then it says, because he did that, his name is highly exalted. You catch that? Like, it's as if Paul's saying, Jesus had, he was already exalted, but because he acted like this and he emptied himself, he got even more power. He got even more position. He got even more privilege because he acted with this way. Rather than attain or maintain his power, position, and privilege, he let it go. And this is what the Bible teaches us, which is counter, counterintuitive to today. The way you get this is not by fighting to get it or fighting to maintain it. It's to let it go and to help others come up the hill. And God will bless you and bring you more blessing. Now, I was teaching this to a group of white, wealthy bankers in the state of Arkansas about a year and a half ago. And in the South, you can use the Bible even in corporate training. And so I use this passage. And I'm talking about power, position, privilege, these kind of concepts. And I shared with them something that uh, Dr. John Perkins, 90 years old, taught me years ago. And he said, Mark, it's not so much about giving people a fish. And it's not even so much about teaching others to fish. At the end of the day, it's about helping others own the pond. Helping others own the pond. So I shared that with this group of bankers. And at the break, at the lunch break, one of the bankers came up to me and he said, wow, that's a tough pill to swallow. He said, if I have a pond and I help someone else own the pond, my pond will shrink. And I never thought about that before. And I felt like I had one of those Holy Spirit moments where he just zapped me with truth and thought. And I was so thankful he did because I said, well, you know, that may be true. If you help someone else own the pond, your pond may shrink. But think about it this way. Now you have two ponds to fish in. See, because if I help someone, if I've got some measure of power, position, privilege, assets, whatever it is, and I help someone who doesn't have or, or isn't uh, what I have, and I help bring them up the hill, that's a friend for life. Isn't it? So why does my pond have to be, you know, super big, I want to help 10 people share the pond, and now 10 of us own the pond, and some days my pond is a little dry on the stock, and I call up my buddy, and, and he says, oh man, come over and fish in my pond, because I helped him own it. I emptied himself, I leveraged that, and I had a spirit of humility in obedience to Christ to reach the world for the gospel, and to do that, I have to come down. I have to give up my rights. I have to surrender some things. I have to realize my way is just a way of doing things, not the way of doing things. And when you as individuals recognize this and embrace it as you have, and collectively as a church, this is what's going to give, in a sense, power to your church. Position in the community of your church, right? The privilege of seeing so many others come to know Jesus. People that are different than you, not like you, truly loving your neighbor, come to know Jesus, walk in truth and experience the abundant life because God will highly exalt the name of this church. Of course, it's not for our exaltation we do this, right? 
like Matthew 5.16, the good works are to glorify your Father in heaven. But if I can use that analogy, by giving it away, you're going to get it back in double fold. I'm not talking prosperity here. Put in money and you get it back. I'm talking about this attitude of humility and obedience, leveraging it to reach the world and your community for the gospel. Well, you have evidence that that's already happening here in this church. The spirit of the people, the leadership, some of the transitions that you've made, some of the price you've paid to see friends leave because they couldn't go down this road. Every church that goes through a transition experiences that. But that's like John 15. The branch has to be cut to bear more fruit. And in this day and age, it's important that our collective churches begin to reflect the unity and the diversity of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven for the sake of the gospel. A friend of mine more than 20 years said in writing in a book called More Than Equals, he said this, I've become convinced that it's not so much that God is going to use the church to heal the race problems and racial tensions in our society, but in the days ahead, God is going to use race to heal the church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being with the good folks here at Village, Lord, the price they pay, the transition they're making, the desire they have not just to be a church for one kind of people, but for all kinds of people in this community, to be a light and a lighthouse for the sake of the gospel, to advance a credible message of your love for all people in an increasingly diverse and painfully polarized society. God bless them, be with them in their spirit, continue to grow the spirit of unity and diversity as Paul encouraged the church at Philippi, to be one for the sake of the gospel, to be a humble church in obedience to Christ, leveraging whatever privilege and power and position they have to bring others up the hill rather than keep them down. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.